You are listening to the Left Right Forward Show with Ambassador Delano Lewis. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Left Right Forward Show, Business and Political Solutions. I am your host, Ambassador Delano Lewis. Today, my guest is the Attorney General of Washington, D.C., Carl Racine. I want my listeners to know there's more to Washington than the Senate and the House and the Capitol and the White House and so on, and all of the monuments. There is a local government, and our guest today is the first elected Attorney General of Washington, D.C. His job is the public officer for the District of Columbia. So I want to say welcome, Carl, to our podcast show. Ambassador, it's a true pleasure um, to talk to you uh, and to your 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 viewers and listeners, uh, and I really appreciate the focus on the District of Columbia. Oh, well, thank you so much. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your background. Uh, I know that you grew up in the D.C. area and uh, very near where I, my kids grew up in northwest D.C. Give us, the, our listeners, a view of your, your background. Sure. Um, <laughs> it, it actually starts a little bit before I got to D.C. In oh, that yes. Uh, my parents uh, and I and my sister are uh, are all Haitian Americans right. born uh, on the beautiful island of Haiti. Uh, my parents immigrated to Washington, D.C. Uh, in the mid-60s in order to really provide a, a better uh, environment uh, for uh, my sister and I. Um, as in, in Haiti in those days, we were facing difficult times with an autocratic uh, leader uh, who uh, certainly was not respecting uh, basic uh, human rights, including the, the freedom of speech uh, mm-hmm. and the like. So I'm an immigrant, uh, right. and that certainly uh, impacts uh, my uh, my story and as and imbues the work I do here at the Office of Attorney General. Um, as you indicated, uh, I grew up in the District of Columbia, and as we've gotten to know each other, heck, we were almost neighbors. Right. Um, and so I uh, I really really um, had a wonderful childhood. I lived in an area of town that had the best public schools and. Back in my day, um, there still was a lot of diversity, even uh, in the area where I lived, which was uh, in Ward Three. Right. Um, and so, for that, I'm I'm really indebted to uh, to my parents uh, to have selected that part of town to put their kids in the best situation to succeed uh, academically, as well as uh, become aware. Um, that we're not, you know, just these um, special kids who live in a nice area, but that we're part of a broader city and that everybody's well-being impacts our well-being. And so we should care um, about our brothers and sisters in other quadrants. Absolutely right. And you went on from St. John's College High School on to uh, the University of Pennsylvania. I did. Yeah, I was lucky enough to um, to go to Penn from uh, from St. John's, and um, as as you know, I uh, was a student first, and also a student athlete, and that I played on the basketball team, and that you know provided uh, a wonderful diversion from the books. Well, I heard um, you're very you're very modest. Uh, my research shows that you were, <clears throat> excuse me, a basketball star. <laughs> Well, stars and the beholder of the competition, uh, so the competition may not have been so great when I was playing. But uh, no, playing basketball was terrific, and I really had wonderful coaches and great teammates, and it provided me an opportunity to really understand the value 
of having uh, a team objective and going about working together to achieve that objective. And I've, I've tried to bring the lessons that I've learned from sports uh, to what I'm doing now. And from there to, uh, to law school, right? Yes, went to law school at the University of Virginia School of Law in Charlottesville, Virginia, a terrific law school. And I've oh, got no to question. tell you that uh, during my first year in, in law school, I had a significant uh, and, uh, you know, really career-defining experience working in the Migrant Farm uh, Workers Legal Clinic, wow. where we provided free legal aid uh, to uh, migrant farm workers who were from other countries who came to Albemarle County in Virginia to help, um, you know, the uh, the apple farmers pick the the apples, um, and uh, and also help out with respect uh, to other uh, uh, produce. Um, what I learned there was that the law could really impact uh, a poor person's life um, by virtue of uh, simply. Uh, inform people of their rights. Mm-hmm. And um, and that certainly had an impact on what I wanted to do with my life in law in the future. And what was that? Did you have a vision for what you wanted to do after law school? You know, I knew that what I wanted to do uh, was um, both uh, to uh, really, really take on complex legal um, cases. Uh, and I, I also wanted to make sure that my portfolio included uh, giving back to the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the UVA clinical experience helped a lot there. Uh, I would later uh, move on uh, from uh, law school and work at a law firm, do pro bono work, including death penalty cases, um, and then eventually went to the public defender service because I wanted to devote full-time uh, to uh, providing legal services to individuals who could not afford a lawyer. That's incredible. Uh, I must say that we're recording on a day that uh, has become a very, uh, in one respect, sad day uh, when you talk about someone who's a leader in civil rights and human rights, and that's the passing of Elijah Cummings and um, the congressperson from uh, Baltimore. Uh, yes. Just passed. Yes, um, and, and thank you for noting that. Um, Congressman uh, Cummings is a leader not only in the, the great state of Maryland, um, but nationally. And he's a national leader um, because he always led with integrity. Right. Uh, he also uh, demonstrated time and time again an extraordinary um, amount of empathy uh, for uh, his fellow a citizen or 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 resident or neighbor and um I've got to say you know I pattern a lot of my public career um after people like uh, congressman Elijah Cummings because I think they go about doing it the right way it's never about them mm-hmm. it's really about the people who they serve yes i was very shocked uh he was an advocate for civil rights over the years so well respected not only in Baltimore, throughout the state and the nation, and he took on a national role dealing with uh, the administration on, on, on so many issues. Uh, so he will be sorely missed, but I wanted to spend a minute or two a time to, to pay tribute to Elijah Cummings. Appropriately so. Well, your background is fantastic. You had this vision of what you wanted to do. It involved people and service. And you went in the public defender service. And what, one of the things that I am so glad to meet you, because I'd had experience in Washington similar 
to the, some of the things that you've done. And I was there in the early days of home rule. I was working as chief of staff of Walter Fauntroy when the home rule Excellent. bill when the home rule bill was passed. And we used to call it the corporation council's office, and that was the chief lawyer for the city. But now, uh, since 2010, uh, you they have an elected uh, legal officer, and that's the D.C. Attorney General. So take us from that point on when this became the, an elective office and, and give us a sense of what you do as the D.C. Attorney General. Well, and I think your, uh, your question in the background leading up to it is a perfect setup um, because <laughs> – D.C. has uh, been starved for more democracy. Mm -hmm. Um, And indeed, unlike uh, most of the states in the United States, 44 states um, have elected state attorney general. Uh, The Corporation Council um, was an appointed position. That was the top lawyer uh, back in the day and until about 2005 when the, the, the name of the office was changed from the Office of Corporation Counsel to that of the Office of Attorney General. Fantastic. And the top lawyer was an attorney general. But it wasn't until uh, November 2014 that there was an election in the District of Columbia for the position of attorney general. Um, and that's the race that I got uh, involved in. And, and certainly I'm quite honored and privileged to have been the first elected attorney general, having been reelected just last year. Congratulations. Um, Well, thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much. I think the whole idea around uh, there there being an elected attorney general was that the residents of the District of Columbia very much wanted um, the attorney general to be responsible to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they didn't want the res- the attorney general to solely be responsible to the mayor of the District of Columbia, but they understood that legal business is very important to all Washingtonians. Uh, and while we want our lawyer to be doing the city's business, we also want our lawyer to prioritize um, the office in a way that the office also addresses some of the um, you know, pressing needs of the District of Columbia, particularly our most vulnerable residents. And I was really excited uh, to join a race uh, with that possibility of using the law uh, as a tool um, to help our most vulnerable residents. That's fantastic. As I was reading about it, uh, there was some discussion about some political tension between the mayor's office and the D.C. Attorney General's office about uh, responsibility and power, if you will. Uh, how has that played out and how you feel about the ability to do what you'd like to do in representing the people? You've done your research well. <laughs> uh, you. you know, it's... Um, Perhaps not too surprising, uh, you know, just uh, in terms of governance and indeed in politics, um, the attorney general had been always appointed by uh, the mayor. Right. Uh, and for the first time, uh, we had a new mayor, Mayor uh, Bowser, uh, and a new elected attorney general. Um, and it was, I think it was predictable that, you know, the, um, the mayor would want... Uh, as much as possible to have the attorney general continue to essentially report uh, to her. Um, And so we had to sort of uh, have that power battle play out uh, because the way I viewed it uh, was that the residents of the District of Columbia had spoken. They certainly want the mayor and the attorney general to be collaborative and to be focused on the district's best interest. Um, But they also made clear that they're the boss of the AG, uh, not the mayor. 
Um, and so we worked those issues out. Uh, sometimes it was tense. Sometimes it was difficult. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes it was, you know, just a tad bit nasty. Um, <laughs> but I think we've, we have uh, gotten over that point. I don't think there's any doubt now. Uh, that the office is a very independent office. I'm happy to report to you that just yesterday I had a good hour-long meeting with the mayor uh, around really important issues related to kids and and, and crime and how we can get our kids uh, off to a healthy start. Uh, And I think that had people uh, been a party to that meeting, um, they would have really, really been proud that what started off as a tense relationship, um, you know, is really becoming more and more um, a respectful and, and collaborative relationship. Well, that sounds fantastic. And that's a credit to, to both of you because you are representing the people there. Give us a little sense of the things that you've done. I, consumer rights, workers' rights, housing, uh, juvenile justice reform. I mean, it's amazing the scope of your office. And obviously you've had some successes. Look, we've, I have terrific colleagues, uh, and it starts off with my chief deputy attorney general and mm-hmm. one of the best uh, lawyers in town, a woman named Natalie Ludaway. Uh, Natalie was the former managing partner for 20 years of the district's most successful minority law firm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, she brings in uh, great leadership. And what we've um, done is we've really tried to connect to D.C. residents to understand the issues uh, that beguile them uh, issues on which they need relief. Right. And so uh, certainly in the area of juvenile justice reform, uh, D.C. residents care about kids, and they also recognize that all too often um, poor kids, kids who live in areas that are underserved, have a much uh, more difficult uh, time staying on the right track. And so uh, we certainly wanted to have a juvenile justice um, office um, that not only seeks to, um, you know, keep the public safe, but also spends a lot of time trying to get kids on the right direction. And so we are reformist in the juvenile justice uh, realm, bringing in all kinds of innovation all around getting kids the resources they need and their families so that they do not recidivate. So that's been an important initiative here. You also mentioned uh, housing. As you know, there's an affordable housing crisis uh, in cities across the country, including and especially Washington, D.C. That means that there are are also opportunities for unscrupulous developers and landlords and management companies to do things to their poor tenants uh, to um, you know take away their rights and and frankly to get them out of buildings um, that uh, that they now occupy and and um, prepare those buildings for perhaps higher uh, earning individuals so we've stepped in and we brought lawsuit after lawsuit against slumlords in the District of Columbia or other landlords, developers, and management companies who don't treat poor people fairly. And we're going to always stand up for that. The last piece is um, the the workers and consumer rights piece. Um, right. know, we certainly have started the Office of Consumer Protection in our office. I'm really proud of the work they do um, to really protect D.C. residents. Uh, and on the uh, worker piece, um, you know, we're defending workers from wage theft, uh, which is um, a prevalent practice where employers simply steal uh, the money uh, that workers have earned. Wow. Uh, and again, uh, those are lawsuits that we're bringing 
uh, to make clear uh, that the full force of the city's legal weight uh, will be on the side of workers and folks who simply should not be taken advantage of. This is fantastic. I can remember in my days in Washington that that the office, the corporate council, it was called in. Now the D.C. Attorney General main function was to give legal advice to the other agencies. And I didn't know that you have expanded that. I'm sure that they had some of those issues in those early years, but sounds as if you have really expanded the horizons of that office. Indeed, and I think the credit goes to D.C. residents, because mm-hmm. D.C. residents determined that they wanted to have an elected attorney general that they could hire and fire. Um, and that made, made, it, made sure that the attorney general here... Uh, and today it's me, uh, would be responsive uh, to their needs. In fact, the statute that created the elected attorney general position uh, has as the object, job objective, the mandate, that the lawyer, the attorney general, will provide legal advice to the mayor, to the council, and to the D.C. agencies, defend the city in court, and have now a mandate to use the law in the public interest. And so it's that second requirement using the law in the public interest that has allowed us to be really creative and uh, essentially uh, give direct legal services to D.C. residents. Well, that is that is just fantastic. The other thing that I wanted, to, uh, the purpose of, of my show, uh, Attorney General Racine, is to educate and inform. And I just know that the our listeners generally have no clue about Washington, D.C.'s local government. So I'm so pleased to have you here, Uh, so pleased to let our listeners know that um, in 1971, a home rule bill was passed, and in 1974, there was an elected mayor and city council authorization. Uh, It's a federal city, so Congress still has control over the budget. Uh, But then there was, in in 71, uh, the non-voting delegate bill, uh, which gave the city the right to elect a non-voting delegate. And that person was Walter Fontroy, who I had the pleasure of working with. Today it is Eleanor Holmes Norton. Okay. And most people do not know that uh, if you have no resident, uh, res- registration in another state and you're registered in the district, uh, your representative can vote in committee but cannot vote on the House floor. And there is no representation in the United States Senate. And I want our listeners to know a little bit about Washington, D.C. as the last colony, because that's not full representation. Well, that's, you're exactly right. Uh, and uh, let me add a little bit more um, flavor to uh, your you know, perfect uh, introduction, uh, which, of course, uh, started with the fact that D.C. residents uh, never really had any local control, meaning that D.C. residents did not elect their local officials to take care of local matters until, as you described it, uh, in the early 70s. Mm -hmm. Um, What this means is that a population of over now 700,000 people, a population that is larger uh, than two states in the United States, a population that actually pays more taxes on a per capita basis uh, than any state uh, in the Union, Um, and a jurisdiction that pays, in total, more taxes to the federal government than 23 other states, doesn't have representation um, in the national government. It's important to note that no capital city of any jurisdiction in the world uh, doesn't have representation 
um, before the national federal body mm-hmm. other than Washington, D.C. So in a real way, uh, D.C. Uh, has taxation because we all pay taxes, right. but we don't have representation before the national government. Mm-hmm. And I want to say that uh, we are you know, real strong supporters of statehood. Uh, in fact, uh, we recently had a hearing before Congress, the first hearing before Congress uh, in nearly 25 years. Uh, we've got 221 House representatives sponsoring a bill that would support statehood and that would give the District of Columbia the same thing that other states have, which is federal elected officials, a House member, and two senators wow. who can vote the district's interest before the national body. Um, we think we've got real momentum. Um, I can tell you that in the Democratic AG room, 20 Democratic attorneys general are full supporters of statehood. We think that is really significant, as this this group of 20 Democratic AGs uh, are quite talented, and they're likely to be members of of Congress, particularly the Senate. They're likely to be governors and uh, perhaps even presidents. And uh, we we want them as D.C. statehood supports early. So statehood is something that... um, the nation doesn't know enough about. And I think if we're successful in communicating the lack of representation, notwithstanding full taxation, uh, we will have statehood soon. Well, you've done a very remarkable job of adding the flavor here. Uh, That bill is called H.R. 51, uh, the statehood bill that uh, the AG was talking about, introduced by the non-voting delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton. And Eleanor has, um, Representative Norton has been in that position over 20-some years. I want to have her on the show as well because I want our listeners to get that full flavor of what statehood could mean to the district. There's one other piece that I can remember when that uh, compromise bill came in to give the city the right to have a mayor and elected council in those early days, the home rule bill. Yes. Congress still has budgetary authority over the district. And they control uh, the the spending, the, uh, the budget. And they can overturn local legislation in 30 days. Now, my research, I'm not so sure they've ever done it. I don't think they've overturned local legislation, but they have the authority to. And they still have budgetary control. Now, with that... Well, that's a- Go ahead. That's exactly right, and I think, um, and I really appreciate your spending um, this time on this issue. So, what it means uh, is, if you're a, a listener uh, in New Mexico, uh, for example, mm-hmm. and your state has passed a law, let's say, for example, there is a um, uh, an HIV and AIDS crisis, and let's say, for example, that scientific evidence demonstrates that a needle exchange program. Um, where you provide clean needles to addicts will reduce uh, the incidence of transference and spread of HIV AIDS. Mm -hmm. Um, It would be quite responsible for a state legislator um, to pass such a law that would allow needle exchange. And in fact, uh, in the late 90s, all throughout the country, states and cities were passing such laws. Well, D.C. passed such a law. But guess what happened? A wow. conservative congressperson out of Georgia decided that he wanted to persuade his colleagues in the House to not allow D.C. to move forward on its needle exchange program because he was morally opposed to it. Unbelievable. And so, 
our needle exchange program um, was essentially uh, stopped, uh, stopped for 10 years. And we've got good data that shows that people died as a result of that. Did that, happen legis- did that happen legislatively? Uh? That did. So the okay. Council of the District of Columbia. I mean, but um, they overturned it from Congress? The way that Congress did it and the way that Congress tend to interfere with district law is not necessarily um, through its own legislation, mm-hmm. not necessarily through rejecting a D.C. local law uh, during the period of 30-day or 45-day review, but because Congress has some budget authority over right. the District of Columbia, what they do is is they tuck in language, they call this language a rider, mm-hmm. in appropriations that precludes us from doing things that our residents have asked us to do. Incredible. And that's an example, of that's course, example. of the federal government coming in to tell you, as a local government, um, that they know better. Um, and that certainly is not the case. The irony of all ironies in regards to the needle exchange example that I'm giving you is that, sure enough, in Georgia, they had the needle exchange program for 10 years prior uh, to the, the D.C. law passing. So Georgians wow. liked it, um, and this Georgian congressman couldn't stop it. But he could, because D.C. is not a state, stop D.C., from engaging in the same evidence-based practice that saves lives. That's incredible. That well, that's a perfect example of of the colonization of the District of Columbia. I uh, I appreciate that flavor because that just gives our listeners an example of of how it works. The the federal city is still under the control of Congress in many many ways, and statehood would certainly alleviate that. That's exactly right. And you know, one of the fundamental uh, sort of political. Um, principles in the United States uh, is the respect for, you know, local um, power, Um, you know, the concept of federalism. Indeed, that's the the concept that allows our states to have so much uh, autonomy. Uh, In the District of Columbia, uh, federalism does not exist. Well, that's incredible. One last thing on this. This has been very helpful, and I hope it's been educational to our listeners. Politically, do you think uh, that statehood bill, H.R. 51, has a chance? Uh, The city is predominantly Democrat. It's predominantly a large African-American population. Um, What's going to happen here politically? Um, Politically, it's uh, it's still um, a heavy lift, Mm -hmm. Um, although I've got to say that we've never had uh, more support on Capitol Hill for statehood than we do now. You mentioned um, legacy issues of race, um, uh, you know, as well as democratic issues. One of the reasons why the District of Columbia uh, does not have uh, the same level of democracy as other uh, states uh, is because uh, Southern Democrats were quite hostile to the concept of a city that was majority black um, having the ability to govern itself, and then having a say uh, on, in, the, in the National Congress. Exactly. Uh, so race and the legacy of slavery was certainly um, a factor as to how D.C. has historically been treated. Um, I say now is the time to completely turn that page uh, and um, allow D.C. to have the same local rights as any other 
state in the country. Well, I think you're absolutely right, and you're making that case today. When we uh, broke away from the crown uh, in 1776, we talked about uh, taxation without representation, and that's exactly what's happening in District of Columbia. If you uh, just look at Puerto Rico, which is a commonwealth, they do not pay federal taxes. They have a non-voting delegate, but they don't pay federal taxes. If you're in D.C., you pay local taxes, you pay federal taxes, and you have not full representation. Well, that's right, and um, you know our men and women also fight in our wars, right? Uh, and uh, and they their blood uh, definitely has shed uh, over centuries, uh, and uh, and so it really is um, an inconsistency uh, in our democracy that needs to be resolved, and uh, I'm cautiously optimistic that the momentum uh, is with us here. Well, thank you very much, and I hope this has been informative to our listeners. I want to move on to another subject because not only are you a defender for the local issues of the district and are concerned about uh, representation and full representation in the district, you've been involved with some national issues by by virtue of your position as uh, Attorney General for Washington, D.C. There's an organization called Democratic Attorney Generals, uh, Attorneys General around the country, and I think you're co-chairing that association, and you've done some very interesting things uh, with that group on national interests, uh, particularly as the Trump administration has has uh, have done some things that you have felt uh, need to be called uh, to attention. Would you explain Indeed. that? Indeed, uh, sure. And um, let me, um, before I jump into the Democratic Attorney General Association, of which I am, you know, a proud co-chair, and I've been a co-chair now for three years. Um, there's also another organization called the National Association of Attorney General, which is a nonpartisan, indeed bipartisan organization made up of Republican AG and Democratic AG, and we seek to work uh, on issues, um, you know, for the advancement of uh, the rights of folks in, in all of our states. Mm-hmm. I want to say that um, the AG rooms, be it the National Association of Attorney General or the Democratic Attorney Generals, have treated D.C. very well. Very good. Um, you know, they treat us just like we're a state. Um, and that's why I've been able to, you know, sort of climb the ladder in leadership in both of those organizations. In fact, I'll become the president of the National Association of Attorney Generals in 2021. Fantastic. Um, with Congratulations. Respect to the Demo- uh, thank you very much. I think it's great for D.C., uh, to um, have its leaders, you know, lead statewide organizations um, on the basis of their hard work, mm-hmm. uh, as well as ability to do the job. Uh, on the Democratic AG side, we've been quite active, and we've been quite active on making sure that the rule of law in the United States maintains, uh, that the separation of powers maintains, and that the United States Constitution um, is followed. And you know, there's no secret that we disagree uh, vehemently uh, with the current uh, Trump administration on very important matters that include immigration, reproductive rights, uh, and, and frankly, you know, core questions as to whether it's appropriate under our Constitution for the president to be able to profit uh, from his position as president of the United States. Um, in the immigration, uh, we've seen that this uh, administration uh, will go to uh, all ends uh, in order to change the way in which people are uh, coming into this country and who comes into this country. Mm-hmm. It's been incredibly painful for us to see that immigration policy in this country seems to be 
uh, imbued by um, issues of racial um, and ethnic bias. We've seen that in regards to the uh, attempts to change how asylum and refugees come into this country. We've seen the same kind of lack of respect for the rule of law in how the administration has um, proceeded with a policy of separating kids from their parents at the border. Um, We've seen how the administration has really seized, I think, in a discriminatory fashion to punish folks from countries like Haiti, um, Africa, El Salvador, Honduras, uh, you know, you name it. And in those instances, we filed suit. uh, And in the overwhelming majority of suits, uh, the Democratic AGs have prevailed. Uh, I mentioned reproductive rights. Um, There is no doubt that the Trump administration is uh, seeking a rollback of reproductive rights. And and my colleagues and I have have fought suits to protect uh, the woman's right uh, to choose and their privacy within that right. Um, And then lastly, I would just highlight, um, you know, our efforts to fight the president uh, on issues related to integrity uh, and not profiting from the White House. In this regard, my colleague, Brian Frosch, the Maryland Attorney General, and I have sued the president um, pursuant to a, a clause in the Constitution called the Emoluments Clause. Right. I was going to ask strictly, you about that. Go ahead. Yeah. It, it, the Emoluments Clause is a clause that the, our founding uh, fathers thought about a lot because they decided that they wanted to establish a government in the United States that was not a monarchy. Uh, the king doesn't control all. The king is mm-hmm. not above the law. But rather, this is a republic where our elected officials, including the president, are privileged to represent us. Our founding fathers were incredibly concerned with the potential that foreign countries could influence our country by essentially providing monies and, and other uh, resources to our elected officials. Um, and that's what we're seeing now with President Trump's hotel literally four blocks away. I'm looking at the hotel right now Incredible. from my office where you see uh, a never-ending uh, parade of uh, foreign countries who are staying at the hotel, and they'll tell you point blank why they're there. Mm -hmm. They're there because they know that the President of the United States appreciates a a good compliment, and there's no greater compliment than doing business with the President of the United States. That's illegal. It's uh, inconsistent with the Constitution, and that's why I'm happy that our case uh, before the Fourth Circuit uh, is coming to an argument uh, on December 12th. Maybe we can get back together after December 12th, so I can tell you how that that argument went. Well, I will uh, take you up on that invitation. In fact, I was going to ask, would you be willing to come back? Because I'm going to do a series on the constitutional crisis that's confronting our nation and the rule of law and what we're doing about it. And you are absolutely at the forefront of that. So I'd love to have you back. There's one other case that I think was just decided uh, by our courts uh, uh, when the president declared a national emergency uh, at our southern border and uh, taking money that was appropriated for military spending to build a wall at our southern border. And I think a judge has ruled that uh, Congress has that purse, particularly the House of Representatives, not the president. So there is a balance and checks and balance here. Exactly right. And so, you know, the checks and balances are are something that we spent a lot of time, you know, back in elementary school focused on. 
um, core civics. Uh, and it's a shame that we see all too often now uh, a Congress that seems to be, at least on the Republican side, and I hate to get partisan because I work every day with Republican AG and trying to get things done, but there is no doubt that the you know Republican Congress has seen fit to allow the president to run roughshod uh, over the Constitution and even their rights as members of Congress. We can't allow that. No, we can't allow that. And you mentioned uh, civics course. Uh, if educators are listening or school system workers or governors or representatives in New Mexico and around listening, we need to bring civics back. It's my understanding that in many school systems, and I'm not sure about New Mexico, but in many school systems, they're not teaching civics any longer. And we're now really in real time looking at our Constitution that our founding fathers set up and checks and balances and, and, and within that Constitution. We're seeing civics being played out, but our kids may not even understand it. You're exactly right. I think we have to supplement uh, what's going on in the schools. I think we need to ask the schools, honestly, what, what are you teaching uh, mm-hmm. in the area uh, of civics? Uh, what are you teaching in the area of, um, of good governance? Um, I saw a statistic uh, the other day, uh, Mr. Ambassador, um, that, that was stunning. Uh, it really speaks to the level of education going on in our schools, um, and that is this. 92% of high school seniors um, do not believe that slavery was one of the primary causes of the Civil War. Wow. Um, that's because we've not taught people the history of the United States, which is a, um, a fraught and complicated history that has you know, some really glorious aspects to it. Mm-hmm. But it's so important for our people to understand our history um, so as to protect themselves from being so easily divided against each other. Right. Um, but we have never really brought out slavery uh, in a discussion form for people to understand it. It's the kind of thing that we have been pushing under the rug all these years. The New York Times ran a very long series on the 1619 Project looking at just what happened when slaves were taken from Africa and from the Caribbean. I mean, persons were taken as slaves from the Africa and Caribbean and brought to the U.S. Uh, and that's just has not been talked about. But it's a part of our system, and we're paying the price of, for that in so many ways, and it needs to be understood. Exactly, exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a passion of mine. I'm, uh, I'm certainly taking it to the attorney general uh, table, if you will, both the bipartisan table and the democratic table. Um, I think it's really important uh, for us to understand our history, especially around complex issues of, of race and gender equality. I think once we have a basis of understanding about the you know the underlying sort of basic facts of our history that's right we will be better um, positioned to actually move beyond the past and this is true for not only african americans that have uh gone through this. There have been prejudices based on religion uh, against uh, uh, Jews. There have been Italians. There was an article in New York Times about Italians have been, uh, had their difficulties in the U.S. When certainly our Native American brothers and sisters uh, whose land has been taken and uh, 
Uh, I, I I remember coming out of law school and coming to Washington, and I had a good friend who worked in the Indian Claims part of Justice Department, and I never will forget. It is just enlightening to me that we took the land from the Native Americans and then created a statute where the Native Americans could come and sue to get their own land back. Uh, this is a this is a, this is real. Uh, you know, you, Ambassador, <laughs> if I can, um, it's, you're exactly right. This is real. And by understanding our history, uh, Mr. Ambassador, we are not saying that America is a bad country. No. We're not saying that we don't like America. Mm-hmm. We're not hating on America. Exactly Instead, right. what we're doing is we're seeking to understand from where we came from so that it shapes us in regards to what we can be. Yes. Um, and, and that's a big problem today, because it seems as though, um, you know, President Trump in particular doesn't like it when facts are told that mm-hmm. could be hard facts, right. hard facts that we need to absorb, digest, and overcome from. Right. And I, I think that that we need to uh, take a, a page from um, South Africa. I had the great honor yeah. of being the U.S. ambassador uh, to South Africa under President Clinton. And I remember uh, the uh, the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was established uh, after apartheid. And this was an opportunity for people to come to talk about the issue of apartheid. And that's segregation in South Africa uh, by race uh, and class. And they would talk and not only talk about it, but they would forgive those that perpetrated that. We, not, we don't have any kind of system where we, we don't even talk about it, let alone talk about forgiveness. But I think that's the kind of dialogue that has to ensue. Would you agree? I think that's exactly right. Um, and, um, you know, to be honest, that's why uh, organizations that are you know, bipartisan, like the National Association of Attorney General, uh, it, it does allow for uh, folks to have open and honest conversations, uh, to respect each other, uh, to understand uh, where uh, each other has come from, and thereby, you know, work in a much more bipartisan pa- um, fashion. Uh, we have to embrace the secret sauce of America. That's and the exactly. secret sauce of America is our democracy um, and how closely it's been intertwined with our immigration. Right. Well, I am so pleased. You've been so generous with your time. Uh, we have a few minutes left, and I, I, I just, I'm just impressed with your office. I'm impressed with your, uh, your challenges and uh, your aspirations to make a difference in serving not only the people of the district, but our nation as well. What, what do you think? I'm interested in your own political future. What's, what's, in, what's next for Carl Racine, who's done uh, as doing an outstanding job with the Attorney General of Washington, D.C., but you got a national reputation through the Attorney General's Association. And I just, what's next in your future? Well, you know, I think a um, couple things. First, I'm focused on, you know, doing the job. Uh, right. And so the job, uh, my most important uh, job is to use the law in a way that helps uh, the district residents who are most vulnerable. Um, that's what I focus on locally. And I will continue to do that. Nationally, I'm focused in a broader way on making sure uh, that uh, underserved communities and immigrants um, are, are respected according uh, to law. Uh, in terms of um, you know the next job uh, for me, um, I think you can uh, bet your bottom dollar that it will be 
serving as a lawyer, uh, right. and that somehow, some way, I'll be using the law uh, to help people's lives, uh, whether that's in an elective office, appointed office, or working at a uh, private firm or for a company. I don't know. We'll, we'll let that unfold. Well, that's fantastic. One last thing. Uh, I always ask uh, people of your stature and success, um, just what were your secrets in, 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 in achieving those things that you've achieved? Uh, and what advice you might give to those listeners who are out there thinking about a career in government, thinking about service and politics, uh, uh, or those who even think about maybe a career change? What kind sure. of advice? What kind of advice would you give? Well, um, several uh, pieces of, of advice. I mean, first of all, I've got to uh, express gratitude uh, and gratitude uh, for uh, you know my parents, uh, my teachers, and my coaches. Um, you know, who were the leaders in my life who I looked up to, uh, and they, um, they really, really paved uh, the way uh, in terms of, uh, you know, instilling in me a, a sense that um, I, too, am responsible for the well-being of others um, and that I can actually do things to, to, to make life a bit better um, for people uh, who need it most. Um, so gratitude, number one. Um, number two, I mean, I think it's really important uh, for young professionals and indeed high school students to develop strong relationships uh, with people who will happily serve as your mentor. Um, and in those relationships, you should give the mentor uh, the full authority to be critical, to be constructive, and to push you to be the best that you can be. Uh, so my mentors have been extraordinary. Um, lastly, I think um, what I would uh, would really, really try to impress on people um, is that my life uh, history shows me that the more that um, that that uh, I have given, the more I have gotten. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, if you're looking at making money or anything of that sort, um, it's okay. The more you give, the more you're gonna get. So develop relationships of trust. Give as much as you can uh, to people who are not. Uh, as well uh, positioned as you are, um, and uh, and be and be modest and grateful for for the talents that have been given to you. Oh, that is that is incredible, uh, wonderful, wonderful advice. Uh, it's been so good and talking with you. I I'm 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 so impressed not only with your focus but your vision and your caring. Those three points: gratitude, relationships through mentors, and uh, service, I think, will put any person in good stead for the future. Um, a son of an immigrant uh, who has achieved, uh, you have really been a model for my podcast show. Uh, I've tried to uh, have discussions where we could educate, inform, and inspire. And I must say, Attorney General Carl Racine, you have done all three extremely well. You know, you summarized that so beautifully, uh, and it's consistent with uh, how my mom, Marie Racine, a teacher for 45 years at the University of the District of Columbia, um, you know, really, really talks about her job and what she tried to instill uh, in her students. So thank you very much, Mr. Ambassador. I look forward to the next time, and please um, feel free to call on me uh, for anything. Well, the same is true for me. I'm here semi-retired in New Mexico, but excited about helping those who are helping others. You have been a great guest today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to Left, Right, Forward. 
show, uh, Business and Political Solutions. We've been talking with uh, Attorney General Carl Racine of Washington, D.C. He is an immigrant uh, from Haiti, came here when he was three or four years old, raised in Washington, D.C., went to public schools, University of uh, Virginia Law School and uh, University of Pennsylvania for his bachelor's degree. But he's achieved so much as a public defender, uh, as a lawyer in a reputable firm, and now the chief lawyer in the District of Columbia, who cares about people. He talks about what he did, what he is doing on consumer rights and worker rights and juvenile justice. But he's also concerned about the people of this country and trying to hold the president of the United States accountable. And he's been defending the Constitution. So I hope you uh, have enjoyed the show because it definitely did do what we wanted to do to educate, to inform and to inspire. Thanks for listening. Until next time, Godspeed. You have been listening to the Left Right Forward Show, where our mission is to inspire, educate, and inform. Thanks for listening.